Scott asked me on the way in, he said, how are you? And I said, well, I felt a whole lot better yesterday afternoon. Um, 24 hours later, it, it didn't seem such, like such a good idea. Um, let's pray before we turn to God's word. Our Father, we ask that you would gather us around your word. We ask that you would gather us around the cross because we want to see Jesus. Father, hear our prayers. Bring us near to the throne of heaven. Show us our King. And just send your Spirit among us to warm our hearts. Amen. Um, in, in our account this evening, we have uh, two things really to think about. First of all, we need to think about an encounter between Jesus and the Pharisees. And, and then in the middle of all of that, there's going to be a short parable that Jesus will tell. And at the heart of it all is the way in which Jesus and the Pharisees think about a, a particular woman. And as I've begun to work through some of the, the parables, I've discovered that the Pharisees are quite interesting people. Uh, it's hard to get information about them, but the more I learn, the more interesting it gets. So let's ask a question. Uh, do you ever wonder about the Pharisees? Um, I have to admit that sometimes I do. And then the more I learn about them, the more I worry that I might be one of them. Um, and sometimes it's, it's difficult to figure out why Jesus and the Pharisees were so much in conflict with one another. But if we're going to understand this story this evening, we need to know something about them. Who were they? What were they like? What did they do? And so we're going to think about that just for a few moments. So let's see what these people were like. It's actually quite difficult to pin down uh, who they were and exactly what they did because they were a complex group of people. And sometimes, therefore, we simply resort to calling them hypocrites, which is true. Jesus did use that word about them. He called them hypocrites. But if we focus only on that description of them, then we might dismiss them too easily. Because as well as that condemnation, we know other things about them as well. In Luke chapter 13, for example, we discover that some of the Pharisees came to Jesus to warn Jesus about Herod. Uh, it's in Luke chapter 13, verse 31. And then in John, we read John 3, verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. And we know the story of, of Nicodemus and how he came to talk to Jesus. And so we know that at least some of the Pharisees took Jesus seriously. In Acts chapter 23, it's in verse 9, we find some of the Pharisees defending Paul. And then in the story we have this evening, we see that the Pharisees, whatever their motivation, they were at least happy to meet with Jesus and eat with him. And if all of that's not interesting enough, then I'd like to read parts of a prayer. And this prayer was used during the morning and evening sacrifices in the temple. And it was the Pharisees who introduced at least some of the prayers to that service. Here's, how, here's the first part of it. With great love hast thou loved us, O Lord our God. Our Father and our King, cause our hearts to cleave to thy commandments. Unite our hearts to love and to fear thy name. It's pretty good. And then it continues like this. For thy, for thy art a God who prepares salvation, and have in truth brought us near to thy great name, in order that we in love may praise thee. Blessed be the Lord, who in love chose his people Israel. And every time I read that prayer, I think to myself, well, I could use that. 
And uh, the more I find out about the Pharisees, the more interesting they become. We also know that this word Pharisee can mean one who separates himself and devotes himself to righteous living. Most of them were happy to combine their religious and their political lives. They were known as men of the ordinary people to the point that they believed in an idea familiar to us, which was the priesthood for all the people. The Pharisees were the people in Israel who established schools and synagogues. They kept the Sabbath. They said grace at every meal. Their daily prayers came from Deuteronomy chapter 6. We even have evidence that the Pharisees were less strict about the law than the Sadducees. We know that they attended the daily sacrifice for forgiveness. And then wait for this. The Pharisees in Jewish tradition have been given credit for bringing a note of cheerfulness and joy to the Sabbath. And we could go on to the extent that the Jewish encyclopedia calls the Pharisees a party of progress. And if you'd like to read a little bit more about that, the Jewish encyclopedia is available online. And yet, Jesus was at war with these people. And it's a really interesting thing. Why, with everything we've said, why was Jesus at war with these people? It's a really good question. So we need to turn to Luke chapter 7, where Jesus is eating at a Pharisee's house. And we we need to realize that this evening we have an invitation to go there as well. And there we're going to find Simon and Jesus and a woman who doesn't even have a name. And maybe as we visit that house, we'll also find ourselves there as well. And as we go, as as we do, it's my hope and it's my prayer that we'll find ourselves returning to the place where we first met Jesus. And see again our first love. So let's make our way to Simon's house. Um, One of the things we need to prepare ourselves for as we go is the tension that we're going to find there. Because this house is full of tension. I wonder, have you ever been at one of those social events where something happens and you think to yourself, well, whatever you say, say nothing. Um, If you have, you'll know that that's the kind of tension you can feel the whole way into next week. And we're going to Simon's house, and there's lots of tension there. And it's one of the keys that will help us unlock this story. And here's one of the first points of tension. It's all about sinners and their own kind of people. We begin to see this tension in verse 37, and then again in verse 39. Verse 37 says this, And behold, a woman in the city which was a sinner... And these first two words of that verse, and behold, are words of astonishment. And what they're saying is this. Look, would you look at what is happening? There's a woman in Simon's house. And not only is she a woman, she's a sinner. And she's come into the house. And I don't know about you, but I already feel uncomfortable even talking like that. But Simon is absolutely horrified. And he says in verse 9, this man... If he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is. And immediately the tension is clear, because the Pharisees don't want, of any, don't want to have anything to do with the wrong kind of people. The second point of tension is really between Jesus and the Pharisees, because something happens. One of the accusations that kept coming against Jesus was that he kept company with the wrong kind of people. We have an accusation like that in Luke 15. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. And really it means something like this. You don't expect us to keep company with them, do you? Well, I mean, we're not like them. 
Because we take God seriously and they don't. And for the Pharisees, the poor and the lame and the blind and the outcast and the sinners had all been rejected by God and had to be avoided. These were the accursed people who knew not the law. That's the reference here in John chapter 7. So if these people were accursed, who was Jesus to keep company with them? But Jesus was so full of the ability to change hearts that he loved all these opposite people. And these are the first points of tension between Jesus and the Pharisees and the kind of people who are loved by God. And then the tension continues. And these tensions have got something to do with the Jewish customs of the day. And the very first thing that should have happened whenever Jesus arrived at the house was that he should have been given oil and perfume or or water to wash his hands and feet. In fact, this was so important according to the customs that it should have been given before grace was said. But none of these courtesies were extended to Jesus. And it points us to the idea that this invitation from the Pharisees was as much an opportunity to test Jesus as it was a kindness. None of it happened, and really what was happening was it was a humiliation. And according to the culture, Jesus had every right to assume that he wasn't welcome, to display his anger, and then leave. But Jesus chose to stay. So we have perfume and water is one of those uh, customs. The second one is this. It's the seating plan. If you're not feeling enough tension already, Jesus does something as he arrives, and it has to do with where he sat. Verse 36. And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. A number of years ago, I'm, I'm going to say my dad managed to acquire... I think that's the best word. He managed to acquire two tickets for a C.S. Lewis memorial service in Westminster Abbey. And on the way in, he brought me along with two tickets. And on the way in, we looked at the tickets, and one of them was pink and one of them was red. And Dad said to me, here, you take the red one. That's probably a better seat. And the thing is, it was. We went through the door, and the steward looked at my ticket, and he said, oh, you have one of those? And he led me to one of the seats in the choir stalls, And it turned out that there was a very clear seating plan, and I ended up with one of the best seats in the house. It's the sort of thing which could go to your head. Um, But it was similar here in Simon's house, because the eldest, and therefore the most respected, was given the honor of sitting first. Or at least that's what's supposed to have happened. But the text here says that Jesus simply entered and he reclined and he took the first place. And it's virtually impossible to think that Jesus was the oldest in the room. And Jesus deliberately took the place of authority in Simon's house, which was, of course, rightly his. And so this whole account in this house begins on a note of tension. And one of the things to notice and bear in mind is that Jesus has been humiliated by the Pharisees in public. And then if this was a film, we would cut to the close-up of a woman. And we need to think about this girl in Simon's house. Verse 37, and behold. In other words, look. Look at what's happening Pay very careful attention because something is about to happen which is going to shock everybody in the room. And if we're honest, or at least if I'm honest, even telling this part of the story makes me feel a little better, maybe a whole lot uncomfortable. 
Because this girl, she's overcome with emotion. She begins to cry. She begins to wash his feet. And then she wipes his feet. And then she anoints him with perfume. And I can detect a little bit of Simon, at least a little bit of Simon in me. Especially if it was happening here, right in front of us all. So what's going on? Well, the bit to see now is this. The whole thing is now a contrast between Simon and this girl. Between the man who thought he was righteous and the woman who was not. Between the man who looked to himself and to all the things he did. And the woman who looked to Jesus because she knew she had nothing. It's the contrast now between legalism and grace. And we need to begin this part of the story in verse 45. Jesus is speaking to Simon and he says this. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. And this little detail points to the fact that she has been there the whole time. She's seen everything. And she knows how Jesus has been humiliated. And here's the thing. She knows what that feels like. She knows what it's like to be humiliated on the streets. She knows what it's like to be looked down on. She knows what it's like to hear all of those whispers because all of those whispers are all about her. Because according to Simon, she's the wrong kind of person. And for Simon, people like these were beyond any hope of ever being accepted by God. Why? Because for Simon, forgiveness was only available for those people who could do something to put things right. And the Pharisees went out of their way to find out if you could put things right. Put things right first. Prove yourself first. And then God will forgive you. And that might sound all right. But it all ends up in a place where we end up looking to our own works and our own lives and our own righteousness. And we all forget that we, or we run the risk of forgetting, that we're just like the girl, which was a sinner. And those words that we meant at the beginning, those words of Rabbi Duncan come back to us again, echoing through this story. Take it, lassie. Take it. It's meant for sinners. You see, what if you're the worst person in town? What if you just can't put things right? What if you're like this girl and the only thing you have is a trail of broken relationships and a trail of broken homes? How do you put things right then? There's just a whole range of things you can't put right. And what then? Well, according to the Pharisees, she should have been rejected. And if Jesus really was a prophet, then he would have known this. And Jesus should have rejected her as well. But he didn't. Because Jesus had been speaking of forgiveness, even for the worst people in town. And Jesus had the right to forgive whomever he wished to forgive. And to explain how it all worked, Jesus told a parable. And this comes in verse, verses 41 and 42. And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. One owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, and we need to notice the word nothing, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me therefore which one of them will love him most. 
Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. And here's the staggering thing. Probably the most shocking thing of all. Not only had this debtor nothing to pay with, but this forgiveness that comes unbidden. It comes without prior condition. It comes at the moneylender's expense and the moneylender's own free decision to forgive those who owed the money. And when they had nothing to pay, he forgave them both. And all of this explains why the girl did what she did. In spite of the fact that she could not put things right, in spite of the fact that her life was a mess, and everyone knew it was a mess, in spite of all of that, Jesus had loved her and Jesus had forgiven her. The king of the whole world had by his own sovereign choice and his mercy called her heart and he had spoken words of forgiveness to her. Jesus had met her just as he had met other people, other people like her. And she knew what Jesus had been doing. And she knew that with Jesus there was hope. God had made the first move and now she had tracked him down to Simon's house and her eyes were fixed on him. Here was her true first love. And Jesus had come to fetch her and Jesus would carry her home and she had quite literally poured out her love and worship. And here's the really tricky thing about the Pharisees. It was their goodness and maybe even their service that got in the way of forgiveness. All of those things that we mentioned at the start, their prayers, their worship, their commitment to do the right thing, their schools and their synagogues, their knowledge of the Bible, it had all become the way in which they proved themselves. And in the end, they were putting their trust in themselves. And they desperately needed people like this girl because they could point at her and they could feel better about themselves. Her eyes were fixed on Jesus and their eyes were fixed on themselves. I wonder if I could be personal just for a moment. The more I think about my own faith, the more I realize that the, the only thing I've ever brought to Jesus is my nothing. Sometimes I like to look at me and I think that I've done a lot for Jesus. But that's not really true. And so as we finish, we need to think about her great love. And we need to see how that works in verse 47. Because at this stage, as we begin to wrap things up, we could all, or certainly I could make a very grave mistake. And all too easily, I could slip into Simon's shoes and I could feel very comfortable about all of this. Because at this stage, it would be very easy for me to say something like this. So do you see this girl? Do you see this woman who loved? We need to do all that we can to be like her. And we need to kneel at his feet and give her all to Jesus. But that would be a great mistake. A great mistake to come so far and then to say we have to be like this girl. Because you and I cannot corral worship. I don't have any all to give. I only have what Jesus gives me. And we really need to see this. Her great love was not the cause of her acceptance and her forgiveness. The words of forgiveness came first. 
and the worship came second. And it's absolutely clear from the parable. Look at the order in verse 42. First of all, they had nothing to pay. Then he forgave them both. And then the question, which of them will love him most? Forgiveness is the cause and love is the effect. And faith or trust is just an empty hand which reaches out and which says thank you and which says, Jesus, if you say I'm forgiven, then I'm forgiven. And whenever we see that, we might imagine a conversation between Simon and this girl. Now, in the interest of openness, I need to cite my sources for this part um, because I've adapted this from an essay by an American theologian uh, called Gresham Machen. Some of you may know the name. But I wonder if you can imagine a, a conversation between Simon and the woman. Simon speaks to the girl and he says this, Woman, have you obeyed the law? No. She says, I've broken every one. And if you've broken the law, says Simon, have you paid the penalty for disobedience? No, she will say. But I know someone who has paid it for me. And I'm free. Well, all right then, says Simon. You might be forgiven, but are you righteous? Because you need to be righteous for heaven. In fact, this man, Jesus, he's telling you that you have to be more righteous than me. Have you lived a righteous life? And she'll say no. Even since I began to follow him, I've sinned in thought and word and deed. I don't have any righteousness of my own. But Jesus was righteous for me. And he has kept the law. And he has paid the debt. And his righteousness is mine. And if Jesus says I'm free, then I'm free. So let me point you to Jesus as we close. Because what you and I need most is Jesus and forgiveness. Or to use what might seem like an old-fashioned word now, we need to be saved. We need to be saved from our sins. So I need to stop explaining and simply finish by reading what Jesus says. And what comes next is grace. It's God's free and sovereign choice. It's not my choice. It's God's choice. And it's God's salvation. And it's the only thing which changes hearts. And it's the only thing which sets us free. And Jesus comes of his own sovereign will. And he speaks to us. And he calls us. And he calls out to his people. And he says this. Come unto me. All ye that labor. And are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. And so as we hear these words, can I ask you to look to Jesus? Come to Jesus with all of your nothing. And receive everything. Put your hope in him. And know that he forgives you and loves you and holds you and will keep you forever. And as we do this, we will hear Jesus speaking to us again. And he will speak to us as he spoke to the girl in the story, verse 50, and he will say this, Thy faith has saved thee. Go in peace. Next Sunday is Communion Sunday. 
And maybe as you think of, of next Sunday, you'll be thinking through your relationship with Jesus and your faith. But as we come to that table, the only thing we bring with us is all of our nothing. And there at his feet, in the light of his glory and in the light of his grace, we will sit in awe. I wonder, have you seen this Jesus? Do you know him? Wouldn't you like to? Let's pray. All hail atoning blood. All hail redeeming grace. All hail the gift of Christ our Lord, his strength and righteousness. King Jesus, we need you. We need your love and your compassion and your righteousness. We need your gift of faith and forgiveness. And we need your peace. For those of us who have fallen out of love with you and out of love with the good news, for those of us who have fallen in love with something else, Jesus, would you call us home? King Jesus, we need you. There's no one else we can turn to, so would you draw us near and would you hold us fast? Restore broken hearts. Lift up those of us who have been hurt by a careless world. Hold those who feel lost. We ask for your healing power in the lives of those who suffer pain. Jesus, we ask for your comfort in the lives of those who have suffered loss. We ask for your guidance and your direction for those who have lost their way. And Father, for Robin and his family at this time, we ask that they would know your healing presence. Reach out to them and draw them near and encourage them and comfort them. Our Father, we seek your presence with us, guarding us, keeping us, holding us and protecting us. Father, for those who need work and financial help, we ask for a generous providence. For those who are worried, we ask for rest. And for those we know who are lost and far from you, we ask that you would find your people. We ask for, ask for your salvation in our families, in our friends, and in our churches. And our Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit will be at work in our hearts, answering all of these prayers. So come, Lord Jesus. Be with your people. And all of this we ask in your name. Amen.